And now, proper propaganda. If you're just tuning in to Civic Cipher, I'm your host, Ramses Ja. I think you already know this, but I go by the name Q Ward. Yes, indeed. Uh, and be sure to stay tuned. We still got a lot more show in store for you. Um, we're going to talk about the way the criminal justice system treats black people and hopefully share some things that you didn't know um, that we know very well, <laughs> unfortunately. Um, you know, Q and I both have personal stories. Uh, not, I guess not personal, but I guess in our family, uh, folks dealing with the criminal justice system and just how unfair it is. And, you know, you're kind of fighting a hopeless fight, just kind of sucks you and chews you up and swallows you. A little later in the show, we're also going to talk about the first African-American umpire in Major League Baseball. But first and foremost, let's discuss how to become a better ally. So um, do me a favor, make a note. Uh, there's a movie called Who We Are. Now, I talked about this. Um, a lot of you know I do a show for iHeartMedia. They have a vertical called the Black Information Network. And I host this show uh, for them. And uh, I got a chance to speak with the director of this film. Amazing film. If you're black, if you're white, it doesn't matter who you are. If you're a citizen in this country, um, it is a film worth watching. It will educate you. It educated me, and I'm a, I'm, I live this. You know, I does this, and I found out some stuff. So I'll read this briefly. Uh, former ACLU, ACLU Deputy Legal Director Jeffrey Robinson had one of the best educations in America. He went to Marquette University and Harvard Law School been a trial lawyer for over 40 years. In 2011, Robinson began raising his then 13-year-old nephew as a black man, raising a black son. Struggled with that to tell his son about racism in America. How, he wondered, did we get here? And when he started looking at our nation's history, Robinson was shocked by what he had not known. The film interweaves historical and present-day archival footage, Robinson's personal story, and observational and interview footage capturing Robinson's meetings with black changemakers and eyewitnesses to history. From a hanging tree in Charleston, South Carolina, to a walking tour of the origins of slavery in colonial New York, to the site of a 1947 lynching in rural Alabama, the film brings history to life, exploring the enduring legacy of white supremacy and our collective responsibility to overcome it. Robinson shows us how legalized discrimination in state-sanctioned brutality, murder, disposition, and dispossession, sorry, and disenfranchisement continued long after slavery ended profoundly impeding black Americans' ability to create and accumulate wealth, as well as to gain access to jobs, housing, education, and healthcare. His words lay bare and all but forgotten past, as well as our shared responsibility to create a better country in our lifetimes. Again, the movie is called Who We Are. Watch it for me. You will love it. Now, I mentioned earlier in the show about um, wrongful convictions, a person that I very much look up to named Brian Stevenson, who uh, has a uh, program, we'll call it uh, the Equal Justice Initiative. And he's a lawyer. And what he does is he works to overturn wrongful convictions. Oftentimes he finds, he's a black man, he often finds himself helping out black men caught up in the criminal justice system, again, who've been wrongly convicted. Um, he does help other folks. Almost everyone is poor. Um, but, uh, 
but yeah, he uh, finds that a lot of times black people end up in these strange situations. Um, we mentioned confessions, you know, how police earlier in the show, we mentioned how police can lie to you to get you to confess to things that you didn't do. Um, something you may not know, and we'll end up doing a full episode on this, is that there are about 10,000 laws in existence in this country. And that means that police have 10,000 ways to get you caught up in something that you didn't even know was wrong. You might think you're helping. If they want to, they can get you. I was, in fact, I was, I was uh, watching a documentary, or sorry, a, a lecture um, from a police officer who said, you know, if I get behind you and I follow you long enough, eventually you're going to break some law and I'll be able to pull you over. Um, and this is a real thing. I remember when I was in, uh, in college, we had a, an officer teaching one of my classes back then. Um, and he said, uh, he, he was an off, he was telling a story about sort of the mid nineties when I'm from the Southwest. So low rider culture was real big then think, you know, early to mid nineties, Snoop Dogg, Dr. Dre, Death Row Records, this time in America. So low riders were a big deal. So in college, uh, this is my first year of college. Uh, uh, this, this officer was telling us that um, he, he was like a high up officer, maybe like a boss officer. I don't know what the rankings are called or whatever, but the main guy who told the other police what to do. And he says, Hey guys, we're going to get out in the streets and we're going to uh, like clean up these streets or whatever. And so I want you pulling over every car that even crawls like a low rider. And he explained how they were able to do it, which was effectively the same way. Just follow them until they break some, you know, have some infraction and then pull them over, pull them out of the car, search the car, you know, whatever, you know. Um, to people where this is not their reality, it sounds crazy. It sounds like, well, if you just don't do anything wrong, the police won't bother you. No, the police won't bother you. This is called privilege. <laughs> you know what I mean? So if this doesn't happen to you, you might want to check that. And again, I will say, because that word is triggering for a lot of folks, privilege is not starting with more. It's just not starting with less. Okay, that's privilege. You're not starting behind the start line. Um, these things and others frame the criminal justice system. You know, if it wants to, it'll just reach out, grab you, suck you in. You don't have to necessarily even do anything wrong. Um, of course, we know about if you do something wrong, there's disproportionate sentences. There's all kinds of crazy stuff that goes on mistreatment, you know, at every step along the way, you know, which is more prevalent for black and brown folks than it is for non-black and brown folks in this country. But um, the whole thing works very well for one group of people and doesn't really work so well for everyone else. Um, and the people that it works well for are very supportive of keeping it the way that it is. Um, and... Oftentimes they have enough votes or influence or otherwise to, you know, maintain the status quo. If the world is perfect for them, then it should in theory be perfect for everyone. Otherwise we need to adjust to it. The thing is, it's very difficult to adjust to it when it eats up black lives. One such black life is the story I'll be telling you um, today. Um, this comes from the Atlanta Black Star, a wrongfully convicted black man who successfully fought to have two murder convictions overturned and received a pardon from the North Carolina governor for those crimes, sued the city for $6 million and won. Remember that he won. Wrongful conviction, sued the city and won. 
However, officials in the city of Durham have rejected the jury's judgment, deciding they will not pay the award after spending money to fight the case. How about that? According to the News Observer, a federal jury found retired Detective Daryl Dowdy, who spent 36 years with the city, lied on Daryl Howard in 1995. As a result, Howard spent 21 and a half years of an 80-year sentence in prison. A federal jury found that Dowdy violated Howard's civil rights by fabricating evidence and purposefully conducting a poorly run investigation. These actions resulted in a jury convicting Howard of two counts of second-degree murder and one count of arson. The costly trial lasted several weeks, with the city spending more than $4 million in litigation and defense of the detective. Howard and his attorney argued Dowdy was given the authority by way of his badge to set Howard up to be convicted for murdering Doris Washington, 29, and her 13-year-old daughter, Nishanda, in 1991. The two females were found dead in their few gardens apartment. DNA evidence suggested both mother and daughter were sexually assaulted before they were set on fire. However, no DNA or biological evidence linked, to how, linked Howard to the crime scene or as the rapist. At one point, there was an eyewitness who testified against Howard but his accounts were scrutinized for being vague or contradictory. The witness reportedly even recanted his story to police over time. Let's call it coercion. I don't know that, so let me not call it that. I'm going to preserve some journalistic integrity here. <laughs> um, but it looks like that. Okay, I'll say that. All right. In 2014, Durham senior resident judge Orlando Hudson vacated Howard's conviction, but the state pushed back with an appeal. The Innocence Project decided, this is different from uh, Brian Stevenson, so this is called the Innocence Project, decided to represent the 58-year-old presenting new DNA evidence that led to a reversal of his conviction. Originally, Howard asked for $48 million in damages, $2 million for each year he was incarcerated, plus $5 million for the impact his imprisonment had on his life. The jury decided to award him $6 million. So he didn't get the 48, he got $6 million, but you know, it's not nothing, right? Actually, it is nothing. So, uh, despite this finding, the Durham City Council opted to withhold the recommended seven-figure judgment in the case. The decision was made during a series of cold, closed meetings over a three-month span between December and February. City Attorney Kimberly Reberg said this was the first time a jury made a bad faith finding huh, regarding a city employee. Quote, the city generally proceeds under the presumption that however conduct may have been portrayed in a complaint, the employee was engaged in the good faith execution of their duties on behalf of the city and was thus entitled to defense, end quote. One of Howard's lawyers, Brad Bannon, called his client an actual victim. They pay all that money, they enrich a bunch of lawyers, and then the moment they have to pay the actual victim of the city's conduct here, they said, we're not going to back this, he said about the decision. Quote, do you know how hard it that the, sorry, do you know how hard that is in a system? Oh, sorry, I'm saying it wrong. Do you know how hard that is in a system that gives police officers almost absolute immunity? There it is. Um, that gives prosecutions complete immunity. Bannon asked, it's not easy. I can tell you that, he said, noting that his client did it and won. It is offensive that it is not being honored. Reberg wrote in a statement, if the facts and circumstances of the claim of, or the suit in which the judgment is entered show that the officer or employee was engaged in good faith performance of his duties on behalf of the city when the act of omission, the act or omission giving rise to the claim or suit occurred. A jury of Mr. Dowdy's peers determined that Mr. Dowdy engaged in fabrication of evidence and bad faith failure to investigate. She continued, but that decision about Dowdy, not the city, the municipality's reps suggest 
Initially, the city and other employees were named in the lawsuit, she said, but those claims were all dismissed or dropped by the time the case made it to trial. Dowdy's lawyer, Patricia Shields, thinks the city should pay and not leave her client with the bill. She revealed she had an inkling the city was not going to settle or pay a jury's judgment against Dowdy as far back as August 2021. Someone close to the case told her the city didn't believe they were obligated to pay if the court said he was guilty. She also questioned the rationale to spend so much of taxpayers' dollars to defend the former detective to simply refuse to pay the judgment, saying, quote, the city has known all along what Captain Dowdy did and decided to defend him on that basis. All right, we're almost done here. Poor People's Campaign Leader Reverend William J. Barber blasted the council decision, calling it an injustice. He noted the case wasted taxpayers' money considering the millions of dollars they spent on a trial. The preacher called for the council to change their minds. Quote, while Mr. Howard didn't die, his life died, his years died, his opportunity died, his time died. You took 20 years, said Barber. While the city is opting not to compensate Howard, legal documents show the city wants the wrongfully convicted man to pay the legal fees of two city workers dropped from the original lawsuit. Okay, so let me boil that back down to you. This man was arrested, convicted, and imprisoned, right? Police officer fabricated evidence, otherwise framed him to get that initial conviction. After 21 and a half years, we're talking about black life and how the black, uh, the, the system, the justice system treats black life. And the reason why this case doesn't surprise us, <laughs> uh, but hopefully it surprises you. Hopefully this is not your norm because then we're all in a lot of trouble. You know what I mean? Not just black folks, but you need to know this especially if you're not a black person, because you need to know the sort of things that happen to us that we're numb to, right? I'll continue. Um, the officer fabricated evidence. The man goes to jail for 21 and a half years. He gets his conviction overturned. And he's awarded $6 million in damages, right? So that's a tragedy by itself. Because if someone asked me to go to prison for 21 and a half years, and I would get $6 million at the end of it, I'd say, absolutely not. I want to live my life, right? I'm sure you would agree, but whatever, $6 million. The city says, nope, we're not going to pay. Knowing that after the, the new trial, all the new evidence that's presented, all the DNA, everything, we're just not going to pay it. Then they say they want him to pay for the lawyer fees for the other uh, city employees dropped from the complaint. Now, I know that this is kind of a, an example that kind of pulls from so many different things that black folks complain about, but I've shared on this show before that I have an older brother who went to prison for, was it 12 or 14 years? Something like that. Um, for those of you who are fans of Merce uh, from the Living Legends, LA underground hip hop group, there's a song called Okie Dog. You can look it up on YouTube. It's a dope song. And Merce wrote that song about my brother, Okie Dog. O-K-I-E-D-O-G. Check it out. Anyway, um, my brother uh, bought a new uh, Escalade when those were still new. Um, and was driving around in California, you know, where there's a lot of carjackings, this sort of thing. He did have a gun, kept it in the car just because 
carjackings. You know, he's he's a gun guy. I'm not a gun guy. So that'll be that. Um, one night, uh, there were some people that were kind of messing with his then girlfriend, now wife. Um, she stayed with him when he was in prison. So shout out to Lou. We love you, Lou. Um, anyway, uh, some guys were messing with her at an apartment complex, right? Um, altercation occurred. My brother went in, in trying to protect his woman from these guys, like kind of trying to, you know, guys are, can be guys like, hey, what's up, lady? You know, whatever. Trying to touch on you, whatever. Got his gun after the altercation, shot the gun in the air to scare the guys away. Um, police get called out. Um, my brother gets arrested. Um, now, if you're discharging a weapon in California, I think that's illegal or something like that. Right? So, you know, you get punished for that. Probably not 14 years of your life punished, but you get punished. Right? But what they did was they called it attempted murder. And that changes things. Um, and sort of good news early on was that it was on video because the complex had video cameras. Um, now, I didn't know, I don't know all the details of the story. A, it was a million years ago. And B, I was so much younger then that they didn't want to share the details of the story with me, right? Um, but I remember there being a video and everyone was so happy, like, okay, there's a video. So clearly it shows the gun was getting shot in the air, not at the people. So it's not attempted murder. It's just simply discharging the weapon. And even though it's wrong, we understood why he did it. He wasn't just being an idiot. He was trying to protect his woman and scare these guys off or whatever. Um, somehow or other, that video was not allowed to be presented to the court as evidence. Like somehow it was, I, I'm, I'm not a legal expert, so I couldn't tell you how or why, but that was what ended up happening. So what ended up happening was my brother had to accept a plea deal. Well, he didn't have to because he had all the lawyers in the world. My other brother is a lawyer. You know what I mean? So there was a team of lawyers, but, you know, the police kind of cornered him and scared him, I guess. Um, you know, we talked about it a couple of times, but I don't know what was going through his brain in that moment. But I feel like he was scared and he accepted a, a plea deal. Um which basically says, yes, it was attempted murder. Don't go so hard on me and I'll just go to prison. And so what uh, the top end could have been maybe a year sentence for discharging a weapon, which again, understandably, if you got to, sometimes you got to make that tough call. You know what I mean? Like, hey, am I going to protect my family or am I going to, and, and risk going to jail or am I going to just let this stuff happen? You know, when I'm outnumbered and there's clearly a lot of these guys and I have access to this, weapon that could help, you know, protect us in this situation. Um, so that decision ended up taking my brother away from all of us for, I think it was 14 years. Um, I saw him one time in jail because uh, he was so far away. And then I lived in a different state and it just, you know, we wrote letters and things like that, but I only was able to go see him once. I went to see him again, but they wouldn't let me go. Um, And so that's a personal story that actually happened, right? So this person we're talking about right now, Daryl Howard, um, a wrongful conviction, how the criminal justice just takes these people in. We know black people are disproportionately represented in prison populations. 
oftentimes people become institutionalized, you know, um, and, you know, th- their, their, their prospects shift because now they've been in prison or, you know, this is all they know, you know, this is their skill set and they can't get a job. And then they've been hanging out with criminals for however long. So, you know, they move like a criminal now. They think like a criminal because that's what they've been around. They, they're trying to protect themselves at every move. So it's, they become institutionalized. And when they get back out on the streets, it's like your likelihood of reoffending skyrockets because you don't believe that you have any problem. What am I good at? What can I do? I've been in a box for a hundred years and now I have to figure out how to make money and live, you know? So there's a human element that I think a lot of people miss when it comes to, you know, the, the prison system by itself, but it's especially cruel in how it treats black people. And we say that a lot on this show, but it was important to kind of breathe life into a story and give you an example. And I, you know, I could have made this a footnote on a much bigger, you know, subject, but I felt like this kind of could stand on its own. Um, so Q, I've got a, I'm sorry, man, I've been talking a lot this show, but I got about another minute. Give me how this hits you. Once again, there's no shockers here. Yeah. Right. You say that we make a concerted effort to not get numb to these things and numb isn't the right word. I'm not numb. It, it hurts just as bad. It, it makes me just as angry. It makes me just as discouraged and hopeless as always. Right. So it's not that it's numbing. It's not that I'm over it. It's like treading water permanently. Mm-hmm. We never get to come up for air. We never even get to sit on the boat. We're not swimming. We're not having a good time. We're just trying not to drown constantly inside of a system that's designed for us to drown. And the power in this country, even when there are punitive damages, get to just say, no, nah, we don't want to. And then that has to be this man's reality. Yeah, you won. And yeah, we messed up, but... Mm. And I know our listeners can't see me, but mm. <laughs> well, I think that that sound says it all. But yeah, it's maddening, bro. It's it's. And I, I have to get at the source so I can get some better words because maddening doesn't even really say it enough. Well, I feel like um, if we take, you know, a lot of times we have these thought experiments on this show here. If we change black man to 26 year old blonde haired blue eyed white woman i don't and tell why the same you story put, i don't know why you always put age just because it just helps it just helps people to in, in to to visualize who we're talking yeah about. but don't but don't qualify it she does not have to be a 20 something year old blonde haired blue eyed white woman fair point fair point change the race or the ethnicity to white that's all that's it yeah you're right um, but yes, when you do that and you tell yourself the same story, does it sound the same, you know? And, and the thing is, we're trying to see what justice is. Justice is supposed to be blind. So in theory, it could be a person who is 26 years old, you know, blah, blah. It could be anyone. That's just in my mind, the easiest place to go because it seems like that person gets justice more often than everyone. And so if that's the standard that we all are trying to meet, then let's rethink these 
with a different um, sort of protagonist or antagonist, depending on how you feel, and see if the criminal justice system treats them the same way in your thought experiment. And if the answer is no, then you have recognized the same problem that we often recognize here. So moving on, it's time for the way black history fact. Um, this is an interesting one. You know, I'm not a sports person and um, I'm not a baseball person, you know, in particular, like that, if I was going to do sports, I think it'd probably be basketball or something like that. But um, this one was interesting to me because I've been reading a lot about cases of discrimination when a black person was the first person to cross into a new field or into a new position or whatever. Um, I recently read a book called Segregated Skies and was able to interview the author, the author again on my uh, my show with the Black Information Network. Um, be sure to check out that podcast. It's awesome. Look up Black Information Network. You can't miss me. I'm the one with the hair. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, obviously, um, you know, with Ketanji Brown Jackson being nominated to the Supreme Court, um, you know, I, I just kind of realized that, you know, her getting there was only kind of the first step in the battle that she might endure some some troubling things, you know, until she's firmly established in the, the consciousness of the country and of her peers. Um, as you think that's going to change something for her? I'm, you know, I'm an optimist, man. So, <laughs> oh, oh, wow. <laughs> but, but, wow, you know, wow. I'm, I'm wow. being gracious as, as I do. You know this. Um, but I recognize that a lot of times there's an uphill battle there. So I'll read. Um, I, I yanked this from Wikipedia. It was all I really needed. Not looking for factual things, just to kind of tell a story here. So forgive me. Um, Emmett Littleton Ashford, November 23rd, 1914 to March 1st, 1980. Nicknamed Ash was the first African-American umpire in Major League Baseball working in the American League from 1966 to 1970. Ashford was born in Los Angeles, California. His father, Littleton, was a policeman, but abandoned the family, leaving Ashford's mother, Adele, to raise Emmett and his brother, Wilbur. Ashford earned money selling Liberty Magazine and as a cashier in a supermarket. Um, Ashford attended Jefferson High School and was co-editor of the school paper, played baseball, track, and was a senior class president. He attended Los Angeles Junior College and graduated from Chapman University in 1941. In about 1936, he took a job as a post office clerk, a position he held for 15 years in the late 1930s. Ashford briefly attempted to play semi-pro baseball, but turned to umpiring when he was asked to fill in for an umpire who did not show up for a game. He served in the Navy during World War II and was inspired to become the first black major league umpire while stationed in Corpus Christi, Texas, when an announcement came on the radio that Jackie Robinson had broken baseball's color barrier. In 1951, Ashford took a leave of absence from his Santa Ana, California post office job, where he moonlighted as a Santa Ana Municipal League softball and National Nightball League of Southern California umpire. His colorful style included a personal trademark. When a batter received a base on balls, Instead of simply calling ball four, Ashford would grandly intone ball foa, you may proceed to first base. He left Santa Ana to umpire in the Southwestern International League, becoming the first blank umpire in the traditionally white professional baseball system when he was offered a full season umpiring job. 
Ashford resigned from his post office job. After the Southwestern International League folded midseason, Ashford joined the Arizona Texas League. He moved on to the Western International League in 1953 and was promoted to the Pacific, Pacific Coast League in 1954. He worked with CC Carlucci as his crew chief for 922 games. He spent 12 years in the PCL and became known for his exuberance, showmanship, and energy, even interacting with the crowd between innings. During the offseason, um, Ashford refer refereed Pac-8 basketball games and college football. He also umpired in the Caribbean Winter Leagues and ran several umpiring clinics. In 1963, Ashford was named the PCL's umpire-in-chief, making him responsible for training crews and advising the league on disputed games or rules. By early 1960, um, by the early 1960s, many West Coast sports writers began to suggest that Ashford be promoted to the major leagues. In September 1965, Ashford's contract was sold to the American League. Ashford made his debut at D.C. Stadium on April 11, 1966. Before then, it was all white men. He quickly became a sensation, becoming known for his sprinting around the infield after foul balls or plays on the bases. Ashford also brought a new style of being an umpire. He wore jewelry, including flashy cufflinks, and wore polished shoes and freshly pressed suits. While some observers believed that his race prevented him from working in the majors earlier than he did, others maintained that his flashy style actually delayed his major league debut due to general disdain for umpires to draw attention to themselves. Sporting News stated, that, quote, for the first time in the history of grand old American game, baseball fans may buy a ticket to watch an umpire perform. Ashford was the left field umpire in the 1967 All-Star Game and worked all five games in the 1970 World Series, but did not work home plate. Ashford was one of the only umpires fiery Baltimore Orioles manager Earl Weaver was ever nice to during a game. During a doubleheader against Washington on April 13, 1969, Ashford ruled that a ball hit by Ken McMullen had landed fair in left field when, in actuality, Don Buford had caught it just before it hit the ground. Weaver went up to Ashford and politely asked him, quote, can you change your call? Just ask the other umpires because I understand you couldn't see it where you were running from, end quote. The other umpires all said Buford had made the catch, so Ashford reversed the call. Ashford reached the American League's retirement age of 55 in December 1969, but still umpired one additional season in 1970 before retiring. In 1971, Ashford was hired by Bowie Kuhn as the public relations advisor, a role in which Ashford spoke and held clinics on the West Coast and as far away as Korea. He also served as an umpire-in-chief for the Alaskan Summer League for three years. He appeared in television commercials, playing a cashier in an ad for A&P grocery stores. Ashford also appeared as an umpire in the 1976 film, The Bingo Long Traveling All-Stars and Motor Kings, and in episodes of Ironside, The Jacksons, and What's My Line, in which Ashford appeared in his first major league season. Ashford was also a contestant on the November 17, 1955 TV edition of Bet Your Life. Ashford was inducted into the baseball reliquaries shrine of the Eternals in 2008. Uh, he died of an art, a heart attack in at age 65 in Marina del Rey in California. Upon his death, Bowie Kuhn issued a statement saying, quote, as the first black umpire in the major leagues, his magnanimous nature was sternly tested, but he was unshaken and uncom uncomplaining, remaining the colorful, lively personality he was all his life. At his funeral, Ashford, Ashford was eulogized by Kuhn and former USC baseball coach Rod Dido. Ashford was cremated and his ashes Ashes were interned in Cooperstown, New York. <laughs> Sorry, that was a lot of reading, but um, 
all these firsts coming my way, I feel like it's important to celebrate them, perhaps in honor of Ketanji Brown Jackson becoming the first Black woman to be nominated to the Supreme Court. Um, a statistic I read was that 93% of all air, commercial airline pilots are still white. So firsts really matter. Representation matters. And of course, um, Emmett Littleton Ashford matters. But that's going to do it for us today on Civic Cypher. So once again, I am your host, Ramses Ja. I go by the name Q Ward and United States was founded July 4th, 1776. It is 2022 and we're still introducing the first black person to do stuff. How about that? Well, um, you can always find out more about our thoughts on Ketanji Brown Jackson by checking out the website and downloading any one of our old episodes. It's civiccypher.com. Of course, you can follow us on all social media at civiccypher. Um, hit us with any topics, questions, suggestions. You know, it's our show, but it's your show too, so let's do it together. And until next week, y'all. Peace. Peace. Stepping the borders with press passes, we bring it to you as it happens. The streets love my crew for music and rapping. Street commander slash beat expander, here to fight the slander with the proper propaganda. What's happening? You got a question? Then ask it. The news is just a TV show. Get past it. And this from a quiet wartime journalist headlines. Wake up, refuse and resist. Like this, like this, like this, like this. We kick finance.